Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. I'm recording this intro this morning here at the Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. We just arrived from Boston and we're about to get on a flight to Uganda for our dental service trip this week. So uh, it's a very exciting time. I'm really looking forward to telling you guys a little bit more about this trip in upcoming episodes. But I'm going to make this introduction brief. Our guest today, who I had the chance to speak with before I left, is... Reese Harper. Reese is a financial advisor, and you're going to learn more about him in the upcoming episode. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this interview right after a quick word from one of our sponsors. We are so happy that OrthoChats is one of our premier sponsors for the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. As you know, providing radical convenience to our patients is becoming a big priority. Online chat is now a basic customer service standard for practices across the country. More millennials are seeking orthodontic care for their kids, and competition is growing, So getting to patients faster and stopping the shopping process is more important than ever. How many patients have you missed after you turn off your phone at 5 o'clock or before you start answering the phone in the morning? What about the weekend? OrthoChats is the world's leading online chat provider for orthodontic practices. They have a team of in-house smile specialists who provide a warm greeting to every potential patient at all hours of the day, 24-7, 365. OrthoChats makes sure that you never miss an opportunity to have a value-building conversation with a potential patient. With almost a million chats of experience, they are experts at collecting information from new patients and getting them connected with your practice. Stop wasting your marketing dollars by sending people to a website that is static and lifeless. Hire OrthoChats today to help capture new patients 24-7. Visit orthochats.com before the end of the month and mention Elevate Orthodontics for $200 off your startup. Thanks again to OrthoChats for your sponsorship of the podcast. Reese Harper is the founder and CEO of DentistAdvisors.com, a registered investment advisory firm which focuses exclusively on dentists and dental specialists. His proprietary planning methodology called Elements is used by dentists across the country to track their progress towards financial independence. Reese is also host of the Dentist Money Show podcast, a regular contributor to major dental publications, and a popular speaker at dental conventions, including continuing education events, dental districts all over the United States. Reese is a certified financial planner and a member of the American College of Financial Services and has a master's degree in finance from the University of Utah. Reese, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Thanks, Lance. I'm uh, looking forward to it, man. Uh, me and you have a lot in common. Sounds like with my life here in the mountains, you spend some time up in the mountains yourself, so I'm excited. Elevate Orthodontics, may, I don't know, maybe there's some roots there in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a hard time getting the call started here because we were so distracted talking about all the skiing we had planned for the upcoming winter. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for having me on, man. I'm really excited. And thanks for all the work that you put into your podcast. It takes a lot to get. You got 50 or 60 episodes out now, man. That's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been great, but you're right. The work is there. So, uh, yeah, you, you know all about that. Well, thanks for doing it. It's making a big difference and it always has a huge impact when you're willing to share content that, you know, is just unrestricted, the best advice you can give and just letting it land where it will. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about, I guess, you. We heard a little bit about you, but you you live in Utah and uh, you're an investment advisor. But tell us a little bit how you got focused on dentists and a little bit, I suppose, about your, you know, your interests outside of your profession. Well, strangely enough, I'm I'm probably a... 
my my background primarily was in the in the arts, liberal arts and um, music, um, English writing content. You know, like that was. Uh, I'm actually a piano performance uh, and music composition undergraduate. And so I did my finance uh, degree and ma- uh, my master's degree in finance. Um, I studied a lot of English and, and music in my undergrad. And I, I got into a, a financial planning job working for an attorney um, after my undergrad. I just decided, you know, music was always kind of just something I wanted to do for my undergrad. And I thought I would do something different later. Sure. Um, but I got a job working for this attorney in financial planning, and I learned a lot. I worked kind of under a really smart guy for four or five years and tried to learn as much as I could. And then I eventually started my own firm in 2007. And from that point forward, I decided, you know, I'm going to change. I, I'm going to have a different business model. I was kind of one of the first few people um, in my industry that went to a fee-based business model or a fee-only business model where you um, get paid for your time uh, instead of selling products to people. And that was kind of new uh, back in the you know, early kind of 2000s. And I could see that was the trend of where things were going. And for me, I just thought, you know, why not do that? And I felt uncomfortable with uh, people that would sell financial products to people and then give advice as kind of a a side note, I just felt like people, financial advisors weren't developing the right set of skills and their intellectual competency wasn't really increasing and they weren't broadly like learning anything about tax and investing in legal and debt and real like finance issues. And so anyway, I started my business in 07, but that was Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, uh, sure. Washington Mutual, <laughs> the whole financial system was kind of collapsing. It wasn't the best time to start my business, but I did survive and grew it every year. Uh, you can survive in financial services. If you start your business in 2007, then you'll probably be fine in any market. And so we, we went and uh, we just kind of grew from there. I started working with business owners generally. And then after a couple years of general business owner uh, planning, I decided to focus exclusively on dentists uh, and orthodontists, every specialty market in dentistry. The reason that I did that was I just felt like the challenges that dentists um, and specialists face are unique in the medical profession. It's it's quite a complex business uh, to run a practice relative to, let's say, another professional occupation, especially much more complicated than being a doctor. Um, and, and I saw that financial planning was just much harder for dentists to get around to doing. And so... Ultimately, like I, I learned a lot about uh, dentistry. I learned a lot about my first. I had a few clients that were dentists, and I just saw that their need for help was greater than some of the other business owners I was working with. And so I uh, rebranded my business to dentistadvisors.com and uh, focused exclusively on that market and started saying no to everyone else. <laughs> and that was kind of a hard moment, you know. I mean, they, my my current clients were like, "Dude, are you not going to help me anymore?" Like. <laughs> You're just working with dentists now. And I'm like, you know, at some point, like we have to rip the bandaid off and like focus because I want to learn everything about everything that these people are struggling with. And I want to help them as much as I possibly can. The only way to do that is stop spending time with anyone else. Well, I've got a lot of questions here. We'll see what we have time for. Um, you know, I know I've had a lot of conversations with dentists and orthodontists about their finances. It's a little bit of an area of interest for me. But, you know, one thing that I feel is kind of a common refrain 
is the fact that the income is good. So despite the fact that maybe we've got a lot of student loans or we've got a lot of other obligations, there is a lot of cash flowing around once people look at what they're taking home. And then there's this question of what to do with it. You know, should we be paying down our debt? Should we, you know, be saving? Some people say, oh, well, we're going to get out of debt or I want to start building my retirement because I'm never going to get that time back. How do, how do people think big picture about where to allocate their, their take-home cash flow? Well, I think for the most part, um, the, like if you look at financial planning, the first thing that it should be is like a system to get you really organized. Financial planning should be first and foremost a way to see your entire like financial life in a really organized way. That should be like the first step. And then there's all these decisions to make, right? But first step's getting it really organized. And if you're not really organized, it's hard to make these decisions. So the reason I'm bringing that up is when it comes to like debt and saving for retirement or, you know, putting away money, I think a lot of people will, they're not quite as organized as they should be in terms of knowing interest rates, the remaining, let's say months on each amortization schedule, uh, understanding the the value of their real estate, the value of their home, the value of their practice. Um, what we want to do is like build a really good net worth statement that's really accurate so that everything's in this one, you know, net worth statement so that we can really believe you're worth, you know, 740,000 or you're worth 1.4 or you're worth 5.6, maybe for a, someone who's a little bit more further along or someone, you know, is worth 10 million plus. Like we need to know what someone's worth. We need to have that be a really confident number that we can trust. And once we, know what someone's net worth is, we want to look at how it's composed, how much of it's liquid, how much of it's uh, in a business, uh, how much of it's in real estate equity, how much of it's in retirement plans. Um, Those are the four areas that someone's net worth could be really in. It could be liquid assets like investments or cash. It could be retirement plans or business equity or real estate. And so the ratio of those things is really important. For example, if someone has free cash flow, typically the first thing they'll do is just say, look, I've got to do something with this free cash flow and I'm either going to, I'm going to pay down debt or I'm going to invest it or I'm going to open another practice or I'm going to buy some real estate. I mean, those are the four places you can really, it can go. And besides a boat. Yeah. And besides uh, consuming it. Okay. Like if it was <laughs> going to go uh, and boat, we don't um, even count that towards net worth. And so exactly. any, we, with cars and consumption items like that, we actually don't track them on the a net worth statement because we don't really, <laughs> we don't believe their assets. And so yeah. anyway, so the, um, we have a lot of people actually Lance asked that question. Like, why don't you put my cars on my net worth statement? Or why is my boat on there? I'm like, cause it's never going to like have any utility in your life where you'll be. But I have, you know, I really enjoy cars and the big debate on my plate right now is whether I want to buy a boat or not in the next year or two. So I'm not saying like you, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that's not an asset. In terms of your net worth component, you're saying there's kind of these, these liquid, these maybe publicly traded type investments that you've got practice equity, you've got real estate. And then the fourth one was retirement accounts. Yeah. Retirement accounts, right? Those have four, each of those areas are very, very taxed very differently and they have very different um, exit taxation. So Business is capital gains tax, retirement plans, ordinary income, um, you know, liquid accounts and market securities are already and they've already been taxed. And so you're only paying taxes on gains. The reason I group them into these four buckets is because it's it really tells me how healthy someone is. Right. And if I look at someone's net worth, what I want to do is I want to see how fast it's progressing month by month and quarter by quarter and year by year. And I want to see the ratio of that net worth increase to their annual personal spending. So if someone's net worth is growing, um, 
at $200,000 a year and they're spending $200,000 a year, that's not, that's not bad. That means you're making one year's worth of net worth progress for every year that you work, right? You're getting ahead right. a year for every year that you're working. Ideally, the fast growers are growing at what we call like a three to one ratio or a four to one ratio where they're getting ahead four years of personal spending in net worth growth for every year that they're working. So let's say you're, you spend a hundred grand a year and your net worth grows from, you know, a million to a million four. Um, that's a four to one ratio. You're, you're getting ahead four years of, of uh, spending for every year that you're working. So we want to look at just see the pace there. So your original question is, where does that money go? The free cash flow, like where do I put it? Right. And, yep. and, and I think it really depends on your current mix of assets, your current net worth composition. If you've got um, two months worth of overhead in the practice and six months worth of personal living expenses liquid, then you have, you have choices. You have some choices. If you don't have two months worth of overhead in the practice and six months worth of personal living expenses liquid, you don't have choices yet. In my opinion, like there is no debt reduction like option yet for you because you don't have the basic level of like financial liquidity to sort of like be stable and be a nor- like a business owner that has options and that's comfortable and stable. If you have more than six months worth of personal liquidity and more than two months worth of uh, practice overhead in your practice checking account, you have options now in my mind to sort of uh, pay down debt or invest money and make that choice. And uh, it does boil down to someone's preferences. It really boils down to preference. I mean, financially on paper, um, in most cases, investing money will be a better option than paying down debt. In most cases, like the financial reality is investments will will outperform debt and debt is a tax deductible expense and the growth of your investments is tax deferred even if it's in an after-tax account. There's just there's enough spread there between those two choices where usually investing money is better. It gives you more strength, it prepares you to be more entrepreneurial. It gives you habit building, investing habits that you can like learn how to invest and feel the how it feels to be an investor and feel the discomfort of that earlier in your life and become more mature and seasoned and, and capable as an investor. And there's a lot of benefits to starting investing early. Um, the, the limit to never paying down debt, I would say, is there's also a point where you should start paying down debt and you don't have the option anymore. You have to pay down debt. And that's when your debt to income ratio uh, exceeds 45% of your gross income. So if you look at your total gross income and your house payment and your loan payments and your building payments and your practice debt payments, like all ex- they're getting to where they're close to half of your gross income, you got to start knocking out the debt. Like we don't have any options. We've got to lower your debt to income ratio. Right. Your housing debt should be closer to like 15% of your gross income. Um, I like to see housing costs be there or lower. Um, and then your practice debt and everything else should should never really push you over that into the 40 percentile. We want to keep that in the, in the 30s if at all possible. So what that usually means is once you start saving more than about 20% of your income, any, you know, maybe 25% at the most, everything above 25% of your gross income that's going towards savings, you could say the rest should go to debt reduction. It's okay. Like you don't have to be exclusively investing money, but you want to have your savings rate a little bit high, you know, so that when I talk savings rate, that's like a, you know, just a percentage of your income that you're saving. Uh, anything above 25%, I'd pay down debt with. And then everything, 
below that I would save and unless my debt to income ratio was at the threshold I mentioned. You know, I like this. This is kind of a balanced approach. You're saying you want to be saving a certain amount. If you're saving too little, then you probably should should ramp it up. You know, your debt can be a certain part of what you're paying, but if it gets too high, again, you might want to, you know, redirect a little bit there. It seems like they're, you know, the answer obviously, it seems to be a little bit of both as good options. Yeah, you're right. And, and you look at debt reduction, like if you track your net worth, you'll see like even if you're just making your like required minimum payments, you're still paying your debt off like in a pretty meaningful way. Like these loans are 10 years, 15 years, like seven years, like they're pretty heavy, like principal payments. They're not like a 30 year mortgage where right. you're barely denting it. You're paying a lot of debt down in a practice. And so I, I feel like if people see how much debt they're paying down, even if they're minimum payments, it's pretty cathartic. They're like, dang, I'm like, my net worth's growing like 150 grand a year and I'm just paying down my debt at the normal payments. And it feels so good to feel that and give yourself credit for that and be like, dude, I'm doing awesome because I'm, I'm building my net worth. Cause sometimes just paying the idea that it's just going towards debt feels like it's like not productive or it's not helping you. And in reality, it's like, you know, your net worth, whether you're paying down debt or whether you're saving money in an investment account, your net worth is growing the same way. Like it's, it's a positive move. Like feel good about making a debt payment. It's just making you build your net worth more in a practice asset or a real estate asset. I want to unpack something else you said that you maybe went by a little bit quick uh, is this concept of how fast someone's progressing. So, I mean, I think a lot of listeners of this podcast for sure, but I think a lot of people in general are familiar with this concept of, you know, we take our net worth, we divide it by our living expenses. It gives us some ratio and whether that's a 4% withdrawal we're shooting for or a 3%, you know, we, we get some ratio that we're going for 25 or 30 times our, our living expenses. But I love what you've done, which is actually say, now, how fast is that changing? And it's almost like you've taken, you know, like the first derivative, which is my uh, my math geeky term of it here. But, you know, that's that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're saying, how quickly is it changing? So it, it changes from kind of a static net worth picture to really a picture that shows the progress that you're making. And obviously, there's a lot of things that can change that. You know, your, your spending can increase or decrease, you know, your savings or debt reduction. But to really see the rate of change, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard any other financial advisors discuss it in that way. Well, I appreciate you acknowledging that. Yeah, I, I think like th- that's the foundation of like whether a financial advisor is actually doing a good job is like whether the client's net worth is growing faster than it would be without them. And uh, ultimately, like your financial advisor should be focused on the rate of change of your net worth. That, that's where their, their full advice is reflected. I mean, if they're really giving you comprehensive advice, if, if they don't care about your net worth, then they obviously don't really care about debt and they don't really care about real estate. They don't care about the practice value. They don't care about you reinvesting in the practice. I mean, you want people to care about that and good financial advisors do. There's not just me, a variety do, but in terms of like focusing on the ratio of change, I mean, you could look at it on a percentage change basis. Like early on in your life, you'll see your net worth's growing at like 50% a year or like, you know, 45% a year because you're getting out, you know, it's like you got $100,000 in net worth and you got a practice and you made, you know, half a million dollars for the first time and you paid taxes on half of it, but you had 200 left over. 
well, your net worth is going to go up by like 150% that year. <laughs> or you're gone from a negative to a positive and you're like, what percent is that? I was yeah. like negative 100 and now I'm positive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're still going to have a percent, a positive percentage change, you know, right? Even if you're negative going to positive, like it's, yep. you're going to double, right? So a negative one, negative 100,000 to positive 100,000 is, a, you know, a, almost a 200%. Uh, change in net worth, and you should feel great about that. And and um, I, I think you know early on you have this really high percentage, and then later on you have a lower percentage change. But um, the rate of change, if you 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 want to relate it to personal spending because it keeps you in check, it keeps you, and it's really important. That's why it's so important to track your spending, you know, because you really want to know like what did I, what am I, what's my current habit? Like I don't track my spending to tell myself I need to spend less. I just track it to know. Because I always try to be, I think most people are like generally as frugal as they're going to be. Like I haven't found that like budgeting like crazy actually changes people's spending habits. It does over a very short period of time, but not over an extended period of time. It's kind of like eating. Like I know like I can't go to straight kale and and natural juice, but I I know I'm going to still eat some gluten. And if you try to take that away from me, like I might be able to last for a while, but I'm going to... Like eventually I'm going to have a, a more balanced approach because that's the nature of 30 years of habits that I've developed. Right. And so, so I have to exercise more to compensate for that, or I have to like be more active to compensate for that, or I have to cut out um, maybe gluten out of certain meals uh, in order to like control my weight gain. But I'm not going to like just have a cold turkey change in my diet. And it's the same thing with spending is like you, you have habits, you've seen parents spend a certain way, you've travel a certain way, you live a certain way. What's more important is that you know your own personal number. Because if you know your own personal number, you can say, okay, I guess I have to work longer, or I guess I have to make more, or I guess I have to have a second location, or I guess I have to be able to hire an associate, right? I mean, you can make these adjustments easier by saying like, okay, the size of my goal has to be bigger to accommodate my preferences. And to me, that's a more like rational way of doing financial planning as opposed to like, you spend too much, you spend too much, you spend too much. It's like, that's not really going to be motivating to anyone because we spend as little as we can. We all want to be frugal. Like no one's like, I'm not frugal. I spend money on everything. I don't care. Like there's no, that person doesn't exist. There's just people that have much higher preferences for like, uh, services or they have higher preferences for vacations or entertainment or food than other people. And so those people have to have a bigger net worth to support their habits. And it, the most important thing is knowing what your habits are and just acknowledging them, tracking them, and then owning up to what they are so that you can get to work on building your net worth to support that. Yeah, I think this is where, you know, an advisor like yourself really comes into play, you know, is is basically making sure people are dealing in reality, right? Making sure that they are not, you know, deceiving themselves or, or compartmentalizing their thinking about money in a way where they're making a decision over here that really doesn't jive with maybe some other part of their financial picture. Yeah. Having a comprehensive picture and, and just being, you know, honest with yourself. If your lifestyle is big and you have big ambitions, well, then you have to have a plan to support that. But you can't have one part and not really be acknowledging the other. I mean, that's not going to yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit about investment advice. You know, people, they're saving a certain percent here, but they don't know whether they should be investing it in markets. And if they do that, you know, what's the asset allocation? Then there's people that say, oh, it should be, you know, more real estate or alternative investments. You know, how should people think about that? And how important is that, have you seen in terms of people's success? Is, Is dialing in the perfect asset allocation the key to financial success? Um, no, but it's, it's a really important part. It's a really important part. I would say the key to financial success is having an asset allocation that doesn't deviate dramatically from the way the global market is currently uh, constituted. So like, let's say there's $44 trillion of stocks in the world and there's 50% of those or 22 trillion is in the United States. And, you know, Brazil's like, one, you know, not even a trillion. And, you know, Russia's like three and, you know, Japan's like seven, seven percent of the world's market, right? Or, you know, Australia's four. And like, that's the global market picture. There's $44 trillion of capital. There's probably 13,000 to 14,000 stocks in the world. That's the stock market. When we talk about the stock market, let's not talk about the S&P 500, which is only 500 stocks in the US. Let's not talk about the Dow. Let's talk about the market because we're now a global marketplace with that. That's the flow of capital. And if you, if you want to like play, if, if you believe that if there's two philosophies in investing, one is a little bit more aggressive, meaning I, I'm going to try to anticipate something that does better than the average. Right. Um, I'm going to anticipate, um, a global crisis. I'm going to anticipate, um, Apple's growth before it happened. I'm going to anticipate some future event and consequently position my portfolio in a different way than the global market sits. And then there's the people that say, I want to just position myself to like get the average because I'm fine with the average, the average nine, nine or 10% a year. Like if I can just get that, that's fine. So you're either going to take more risk than that. Or you're going to take that same average risk. If you take more risk than the average, then you're either going to get higher returns or lower returns. Because the average is always going to be the average. And you're going to get at least better than that or worse than that. And so if you're going to invest in the stock market, I would start by saying anyone's portfolio that deviates from the global allocation of capital is taking more risk than the average. So if you're just in the United States or you're, you're just in energy or you're just in real estate or you're more in real estate than real estate naturally exists in the world. Publicly traded real estate and REITs might only be six and a half percent of the global like market cap. And so if you're 15% in real estate, you're taking more risk than the average. If you're 70% in the United States, you're taking more risk than the average. If you're, you know, 40% in emerging countries, you're taking like three times the risk of the emerging countries like natural uh, allocation. So I, I would just say, think of it that way. Like you can go and download um, on my website, a ton of different websites, like a thing that's just, it's called global market capitalization. And you'll see that it changes a lot. It doesn't, it's not static. If your portfolio, if you looked at this five years ago and then invested and then never did anything to change, you'd kind of be in a bad spot right now because the United States has grown a ton in recent years. But Europe and Asia and Latin America and Brazil and Russia and India and China, like they still have not recovered the same way the U.S. has. And those markets still average the same returns over a 10 to 15 to 20 year period of time. They're the same average return. It's just they occur in different patterns. And so if right now you don't have exposure to 
any of the markets outside of the US, especially, or if you're, you do, but it's not at the extent that they actually naturally exist, meaning the percentage that you have is too low, then when those markets recover and the United States market maybe doesn't do as well, then your portfolio will not get the average. You know, it will get below the average. And so the important thing is to match your stock portfolio, in my opinion, start out by saying, this is what the global market is and this is my averages. And this is, it would be like, if you just wanted to give people simple advice as of today, it would be like 52% in the United States, 30 something percent in Europe and Asia, 15 to 14% in emerging countries and like 5% in real estate. Like that would be the, the average mix as of today. But 10 years ago, that's not what it is. And next year that won't be it. So you have to continue to kind of modify your portfolio to match up with that average or just take more risk. Because if you deviate from that over time, you're just taking more and more and more risk and you might not get the average. You'll either get above or below that. And that's just stocks. Yeah. The bond market, whole nother beast. And <laughs> I, and, and I would just say that's the same thing applies there, but bonds, you're, you're just really trying to like stabilize your stocks. You're just trying to get income from, from that. And, and, some of my clients don't even have stocks. They're just like, I don't need stocks. Like, I don't want to grow my money that way. Like, I just want three or 4% a year and I don't want to pay taxes and I want to use municipal debt and, and I'm going to get three or 4% a year and I don't want stocks. And I'm like, that's fine. That's okay. If it's in a 401k, we'll use corporate bonds. And if it's in a, you know, a, a, an after tax account, we use municipal bonds and, and you don't have to take stock market risk, but you're going to get, you know, 6% less than the stock market will over a 15 year period of time. And so I guess that'd be the starting point is like asset allocation matters in to the extent that you're deviating from these norms that I'm talking about. But it doesn't really matter if you're in a Vanguard index, a, an iShares index, uh, if you're in a market vector index, it, it doesn't matter like which index you're in as long as, well, listen very carefully to what I'm saying. The index family. The company offering the index fund. Yes, but the index itself and what it's tracking is absolutely critical. And so too many people think like, I've got a target date fund or I've got an index fund, like I'm doing great. I've done the smart way. My, fund, my fees are low. That you, really, the issue is like from a macro level, like what percentage of your money is invested in these different stock markets around the world? Not There isn't one market. And if you don't look at that, you will have a portfolio that will behave drastically differently than the next index investor. I mean, they're, they're like night and day different. You know, you, everyone just says, I invest in indexes. It's like, that is not a portfolio choice. That's just a style of investing. It's really about the macro level. And I'd rather have actively managed mutual funds if they were tilted towards the right market balance than I would indexes tilted towards the wrong market mix. I mean, the difference between active or stock picking indexes and straight, um, we'll say, let's say like a stock pick fund, like an actively managed mutual fund that charges, you know, almost 1% a year. Let's say we find a really expensive one, which, you know, that, that would be expensive. I would rather own that in the right mix across the world than own some weird index. Yeah, I mean, no question. Some Burmese Alpine Agricultural <laughs> Index Explorer well, Fund. Yeah. Well, I would rather own those active funds in the right allocation across countries, meaning the way the world exists, like a United States stock picking fund 
at the right percentage as opposed to an S&P fund at the wrong allocation percentage. I mean, allocation is more important than fund selection. It is. And so the last thing I'll just add to that is like, not all indexes are the same. And the cheaper the index is, the dumber the index is. Okay. So what that means is like, it rebalances or kicks stocks out of its index slower, and it doesn't reconstitute itself as fast. So like if Apple becomes a bigger part of the US stock market, when does your index acknowledge that and own more Apple? Like how often is it making that decision? Is it making it once a year, once a quarter, every day, you know, twice a year, once every other year, or never? Like some indexes are like, we don't rebalance. Um, so the cheaper the index, it means that the less activities happening inside of the index. There's some indexes that actually are like still computer driven and really inexpensive, but they tilt towards attributes that are like academically superior. So like small companies in the United States grow on average about one to 2% more than the large companies. And so some indexes will say, okay, we're going to, instead of just buying the S&P 500 straight as it is, we're going to tilt these United States stocks just slightly more towards the small companies in the market. And on average, like that'll be more volatile. It'll go up and down a little more, but over a 15 year period, it'll have a superior outcome because mathematically, if you think about it, it's pretty like there's a Nobel prize one in economics called the three factor model. And that three factor model just said that small companies grow more than big ones and that companies that, um, are really growing really fast, like Facebook, they don't give you as good of a return as companies like Blockbuster Video. If you bought like a thousand Blockbuster videos and waited for 10 years and saw what happened, the ones that are almost out of business or really, you know, not growing as fast, those will tend to give you higher returns than the fast growing, you know, companies will because on average, people turn around stodgy, you know, think about dental practices. If you buy a you know, little old dental practice and you, You've got an ortho shop that's, you know, doing a couple of starts every, every month and you're, you know, it's doing a hundred thousand in collections and you say, what percentage return could I get on that investment as opposed to, uh, you know, one that's doing 150 starts a month and growing really fast. And I'm going to pay one and a half times collections for fast growing practice, or I'm going to pay like 20 cents on the dollar for this stodgy old startup. I'm not saying which one's better to buy over a short period. Over a short period of time, if you're trying to buy it and flip it, the big one might be better. But over a 15-year period, both of those practices are going to kind of peak out at the same place if, if two identical managers started them at the same time. Anyway, that's kind of the, the point of index investing, I feel like, is really... It's lost sometimes, and, and, uh, and it's making some investors just dumb. You know, it's making people just assume that they can just like go online and just because Fidelity has a zero basis point S&P 500 option now, like there's free, you that that is a better index than one that costs like five basis points. I see on forums all the time, people are like, well, my index is four basis points, you know, and I just went down from five to four. And now I'm going to like, that's a, <laughs> yeah. So what about this, Reese? What, you know, I've got some friends that are smart people, super successful people that have no interest in investing inside tax-protected retirement accounts. Can you give us your 90-second take on that? 
Well, I'm curious why they don't, but let's ask why they don't. Well, they don't because they're not convinced that their tax rate is going to be lower in the future, either because of some change in the government or perhaps they have a high enough income that they are feeling like well, you know, when they're in retirement, they're still going to have a high income because of their other investments. Yeah, and that's fine. I would say if it's about income, like you're worried about your income not being like it's not a good arbitrage, then I'm like, that's your call. I mean, it's you got to make that bet. Like, that's fine. You know, we have a lot of clients who are like, I don't want to do like tax qualified retirement plans. And that's fine. So I don't have a problem with that. I mean, what you're making the bet on is you're just saying you're not diversifying into that option. I mean, you could... There could be a future, alternatively, where your income isn't as high as it was when you're making seven figures and now you're pulling out, you know, 150000 a year and tax rates actually don't increase dramatically on the median to like 100000 150000 a year earners. And they only increase on the million dollar earners, which is where you used to be. And so now you're stuck kind of going... Yeah, I, maybe I should have made the deductions. And I'm not, you know, if you've got 25%, depends on your income level. If you're saying, I've got a, you know, a seven figure income, and I'm not going to do qualified retirement plan, I'd say, well, I mean, it's, that's probably doesn't matter to me, you know, but if you've got a $250,000 income, and you're saying, I'm not going to do that, I'd say, mm, well, you're, for you specifically, you're passing up a, a pretty meaningful portion of your net worth that you're just going to like, say, I'm going to pay to tax every year, just because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes I'd rather have the bird in the hand. That's not a big deal to me. I don't care. I mean, it's, it's, I'm neutral on it. I think I've got clients right now that are orthodontists that are putting away 240,000 a year into qualified plans though. And they're only given 10% to staff. And so if you're getting a 200 plus thousand dollar deduction and you're giving away like 18,000 to staff, that's hard math to have it go wrong. I'm like I'm saving 80,000 a year in tax, you know? So it's critical to at least be open-minded to considering it. What differences do you see, Reese, between your practices and, and clients who are general dentists and who are orthodontists? Are there, are there differences? Maybe not. You know, what do you see there in terms of how their finances work? Well, I think orthodontists are going to be more like large multi-location GPs. You don't see like a lot of the other specialists expanding into a lot of Three locations or more is pretty unusual. And orthodontists, you know, for the most part, you see a lot of two location to three location or more operations, you know. And I, I would just say for the most part, the, the, uh, the difference between dentists and orthodontists from a financial perspective is that the, the, the orthodontists have a much more highly leveraged business. So like the business of the orthodontist is much more compelling as an investment to make than a traditional single location GP practice. So, you know, you can leverage yourself as an orthodontist much more efficiently than a general dentist can. And that's just the nature of, you know, general dentists get high, general dentists are, can leverage themselves more than endo or, or pedo, you know, because at least they have a hygiene department to be able to support um, production that you don't get when you're um, in some of the other specialties, but each specialty has its advantages. I mean, endo and pedo and, and perio tend to be pretty high margin. And so they're great, but they can't scale. Orthodontists can scale. I mean, you can have 5 million in per collections on a single location uh, or more. It's a really scalable business. And I, I think that's it's super attractive for that reason to me Sure, as an entrepreneur. Yeah. What are your orthodontists, you know, are, do they have different goals? Are they interested in retiring early? Do they, do they want to work as long? Or what is their kind of lifestyle perspective? Um, uh, I think it, 
they, the orthodontists I work with, a lot of them, they tend to be more, um, I think anyone who makes a really high income tends to be, they have the option to be more lifestyle focused and, and that usually wins in most cases. Like most, on average, most orthodontists that I work with tend to be, um, having such good cash flow that like the pain of like additional scale or a, the pain of pushing too hard, it's not super compelling. It's just not super exciting. Most of them are trying to find ways to simplify, to consolidate, to reduce complexity, to go from three locations back to two or two to one. Like they go through this kind of like expansion phase and then they go, man, I like at one location, I think I could maybe like make the same. I'm going to back it up. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then that's kind of the experience I see as a typical one starting in one location, expanding to two or three, and then kind of starting to ask yourself in your forties and, uh, you know, uh, late thirties or, you know, mid forties, late forties, like, is this worth the push? And then kind of slowing it down a little bit. Um, and then maybe consolidating a little more. Um, but that's not everyone. I would just say the, the unusual group is the, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep expanding location after location and build a big, you know, essentially DSO within ortho, you know, yep. general dentists do that a lot. I think it's because they don't have the ability to have the same income leverage or the same income out of a single location that, you know, an orthodontist can get. And so when you, when you get to that, if one location can, if you can make seven figures and that's a possibility for you, I mean, scaling beyond that, I, most people don't, they just are really happy with their lives, you know, and they're, they're stoked and they're just like, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I just want to protect this great thing. And I, I'm, I love my life. I love my patients. I love what I do. And so I think it's just a, it's the definitely like the most attractive niche within dentistry for sure. And we have a higher proportion of our clientele that are orthodontists relative to the broad market. There's what, 10,000 orthodontists in the country. Uh, they, that would represent, you know, 5% of the dental market. And we have, you know, probably like 20 something percent of our customers are orthodontists. And I, I think it's just because financial planning tends to, relieve the most pain for them. Well, I think that's good advice too for maybe early to mid-career orthodontist who is kind of in that mode of, of more, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. <laughs> yeah. You know, there is a limit to that and you get to the point where you start to ask that why question and sometimes you find you're not in the position that maybe you want to be in when you really start to look at it, you know, with a critical eye. It's really, it's really important, Lance. Yeah, it's important. I, I'll say one more note to that. Like for me, I'm the type of person that my why has nothing to do with the money or the lifestyle. My why is like, I can't stand that people get bad financial advice in the United States. And I'm building like a tool to help like as many dentists as possible, like get better advice at a lower cost. Like that's my goal. Like I just want to make a big change. And there's no amount of money you could put in my bank account right now that would make me stop solving that problem. I mean, I know that because I have enough money in my bank account from growing my business to like not need to work anymore, but it has zero motivation on me quitting or, or slowing down or backing off. You know, I'm not done solving the problem that I'm trying to solve. And some people will relate to that and go, that's me. Like I'm more like, it's not about like getting a practice to the point where I'm successful and cash flowing and enjoying my life. Like I'm fixing a problem within orthodontics that I'm really, I really feel like needs more of my time and attention. And it, and it might be related to growth. You have to grow to accomplish that. But that's a small percentage of the market, maybe 5 to 
percent of the market feels that way. The bulk of the market of the financial planning community of of tax of CPAs of of everyone, they're actually in the position you talked about where they they're confusing sometimes the fact that like they're saying like should I grow Reese? Like do I need to add another location? Should I go to three locations? And I'm going well. Who are you, right? Like, do you want to do that? Like, do you like that idea? Like, and they're doing it more because they feel like they should, that that's the smart financial thing to do. Well, there's definitely that feeling among orthodontists too. I mean, they, they see people who are doing this and they say, well, maybe I should be doing that. Maybe, you know, or, or why can't I do that? And I guess they can, but yeah. you know, the question is, do, do you really want it? Yeah. What do you see? Uh, in terms of personality traits or characteristics of your clients that really seem to to be successful, they, they their finances seem to be in order and they seem to have a good work life balance. Are there maybe commonalities that wouldn't be readily apparent that you have observed? Um, I think they have really good staff. Number one, <laughs> they have really good staff. So they have great support staff. They have an awesome team, and they're not frustrated by their team. And when they are frustrated by their team, they change someone, right? They swap it out and they keep building a better and better and better team. That's a really common theme. And I think that's a critical one because they're not occupied. They're not overly preoccupied with the day to day operation to the point to where it's like getting in the way of production and growth and networking and marketing, right? So their staffing is critical. Second, they have really good advisory boards. You know, they've got a great accountant, a great CPA. They've got a good coach, good practice management option. You know, they might not be always engaging a practice management consultant, but they're regularly like engaging someone at a small level or, you know, regular in and out coaching. They've got good technology. They, meaning they, they don't let their practices like get too outdated. I think that's, that's important. It doesn't cost that much more to stay in at least above the median level of practice quality. Um, the last thing I'd say is like, and, and a good financial advisor. Like, I mean, I, I really do think like, it's not just us, but if, if you don't, if you have a fee only fiduciary, like financial advisor, who's really aligned with your interests and trying to help you grow, that's really critical. I mean, a lot of people have like commission based salespeople that they're still working with, um, whether it's like a life insurance agent or it's, it's a, some kind of a stockbroker that, isn't really looking at the comprehensive picture because just a CPA and just a coach and just a good attorney and just a good, you know, consultant, like someone has to be looking at the entire financial picture and going from a big picture perspective, are we moving in the right direction here? And what changes do we need to make? So good, good team, a good advisory board, good mentors, like that's critical. Uh, The last thing I'd say is they take advice. Like they take advice. They don't, they're not defensive. They're, you know, their advisors, number one, aren't super critical either. Like you're, you're a good advisor shouldn't be like telling you what to do. They should be giving you options and like trying to be an advocate for you. Not, you shouldn't feel like they're, they're being like, I guess, manipulative or like overbearing or I'm the smart guy. You're not, you don't know. Cause I think that, that dynamic is, gets weird. You know, um, your advisor needs to be like your friend that you actually like to talk to. All of your advisors do. But I think you've got to be the type of person that like just assumes that everything you're being told, you at least need to consider it. You need to consider it and really like not assume that you know the answer. And we have some really great clients that are that way. And then we have clients that struggle who are, it takes them five years before they finally just go, okay, I'm not the genius that I thought I was. 
I'm going <laughs> to let other people, you know, kind of like help me. Some people are super stubborn, um, super stubborn about like just not, I, I met with a, someone yesterday that's in their late sixties and they're just still refusing to like get help because they're convinced that they've got, they know, and they don't want to pay anyone to tell them what to do in a, from a practice management perspective. Anyway, that's a, probably my list. Just a few items there. Great. Yeah. I mean, I do think that the willingness to kind of learn and grow, it's always something that is important. And, you know, I always think it's interesting when someone in your position who can kind of look at a group of, of practices and, and distill that information down. Uh, I want to thank you, Reese, for, for coming on the show, for sharing your knowledge with us. Um, you know, I would encourage our listeners to check out uh, Reese's website. He's got a kind of system that he uses that I think is kind of unique to go through and, and really organize your finances. Reese, what's the best way for our listeners to get a hold of you? Um, I would say uh, start listening to the podcast, man. Just start listening to the Dentist Money Show um, is the first step, you know. Um, I, I think the podcast is probably the most the most successful way that someone could like start to like at least learn more. Uh, so just go to the, go to our website and you can click on subscribe to the Dennis money show and start going there. The second thing I would do is just go to our Facebook group. It's a uh, dentistadvisors.com slash group. And you could join there and start asking your questions. Just get on there and say, this is my problem or this is my concern or this is what I think is right. Post a picture, ask a question. Uh, it's just dentistadvisors.com slash group. It's a free group. We give free advice on there. And I'd love to have anyone join us on the podcast or the group. And that's probably the best way to start getting in touch. Reese, thanks a lot again. I uh, hope to catch you soon, maybe on the slopes. Thanks, Lance. I look forward to it. And you enjoy your trip, man. I'm excited to hear about it. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 